I want to take my title out of chapter 2 in verse 6. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So today, as we look at this chapter, our portion of it, we'll talk about restoration. Restoration, to restore, means to bring back to a former condition. A condition that has deteriorated, been forfeited, or lost, like the restoration of a home. If you've ever seen one of those home improvement shows where a, a house is in disrepair, it needs a lot of work. And so there's a process of restoration that at the end of it, the owners are surprised, shocked, and overjoyed to the point where it's not unoften to see tears shed. And surely with the work of restoration in the church, our joy should be much greater than the joy of someone over a house that's been restored. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 that need no repentance. So when we look at this subject, the restoration, focusing on chapter 2, verse 6, we first ask the question, why is restoration needed? Why is it needed? Because Paul said there was punishment sufficient to such a man is this punishment. The word punishment is a unique word. It's only used here in the Bible. It's a compound word. The first properly means citizen and then means penalty. When you put those together, it's disenfranchisement of a citizen. What that means is if a citizen loses a privilege or a right, they are disenfranchised like voting. That's a privilege. So if the government takes away your right to vote, that's what the word is expressing here. Except the word is used in the context of church So there's been some kind of punishment where a person, a man, a him, such a one, Paul doesn't name him, possibly because there has been sorrow in this man and he doesn't want to cause further sorrow. And secondly, so we can apply it in various ways as we think about what this punishment is and what it means in the work of restoration. And so there was a disenfranchisement. There was a person that was removed outside of the membership of the church body. Now, commentators are split on the exact occasion because from the context, you can't tell exactly what the sin is and who the person is. Some say it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The man that was taken in fornication with his father's wife, which presumably was his stepmother. This sin was not so much as named among the Gentiles. Paul called on the church to enact some form of punishment penalty, putting them out of the church. Others say it was a person that led a public assault verbally against Paul for which the church took action to punish, to place some kind of penalty on this person. Now, punishment is not exactly a good word in our culture today, is it? Church discipline, which is some form of punishment, or parental discipline towards children, all is frowned upon, looked upon. In fact, you will be criticized as a parent or a church if you simply follow what the Bible says with regard to this word, whatever it means, whatever happened, there was punishment inflicted toward a person. And so we should be highly interested because there was restoration through it. There was restoration. 
So we shouldn't be too shocked by such a word because in the Bible we find that God does direct the church to inflict certain forms of penalty or punishment. For example, Matthew chapter 15, when there's church disputes. Moreover, if a brother trespasses against you, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he responds, not just with the ears on the head, but if he acknowledges the sin, you've gained him. If not, there's two or three witnesses. If not, you tell it to the church. And if not, he's not gained, and it's in fact a sin, then he's to be unto thee a publican and a sinner. That's a penalty. That's some form of punishment. He's to be treated like an unbeliever. Now, how do you treat an unbeliever? You evangelize. You encourage to repent. So that's not treating someone harshly. It just means you're encouraging repentance. So there's a penalty there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul tells a church who's in error concerning the second coming of Christ and the resurrection, who decided because he's coming soon to stop working to become busybodies. So he writes a letter and he addresses that and other forms of errors there in the church. And he says to them, if any man obey not our word by this letter, note that man, have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. What's the penalty? Shame. Who's inflicting it? Church. What's the purpose? Restoration. To note means to mark in your minds. That's the man. Paul delivered the epistle. We read it. He won't get a job. He won't work. He or she is a busybody. That's the person. Now don't have company with him. Company there doesn't mean don't talk to him. It means don't have a close companionship. Things are not as they should be. What do you do, Paul? Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The work of admonishment is to put in the mind, to warn, to gently rebuke. Why? The brother needs restoration. He needs restoration. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, Paul tells Timothy when he's instructing them how the church is to behave itself, the church body. He says, receive not an accusation against an elder, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses. That's pretty good counsel, isn't it? Especially from its God's Word. Do not receive an accusation against an elder. Do not hear it. Do not receive it. Do not embrace it. Unless there's two or three witnesses. Them that sin, which means it's been confirmed. This is true. The elder has sinned. Rebuke before all. What's the penalty? What's the punishment? Rebuking. Where does it take place? Before all. Why? That others may fear also. And then 1 Corinthians 5. If this is the case that Paul is referring to, now again, we cannot be dogmatic because Paul doesn't say specifically. We find there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this punishment that Paul is talking about. He says in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, church, in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the work, <clears throat> to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's the punishment? What's the penalty? He's delivered over to Satan. She's delivered over to Satan. Now in verse 2, 
it's clear that Paul is calling the church to take away from among you that person to disenfranchise citizenship, which means remove them from the privileges and rights of membership. So the act of removal is the act of delivering. You have to see that. The act of removal in verse 2 is the act of delivering to Satan. Same act. Second observation. There is protection in the church body. Is there not? When the person goes outside of church body, Satan comes. When they're in church body, what happens? There's protection. There's protection. If the church is functioning as it should be, in discipleship, in accountability, in encouragement, in admonition, there is safety outside the church, you're in danger. Because Satan destroys the flesh. The flesh here is not the body, although he may attack your body. It's the lust of the flesh. The brother in chapter 5 is being governed by lust in such a way it's being expressed publicly, apparently to all, because they're puffed up in a way that he will not repent. Paul calls on the church to inflict a penalty. Place him outside of the body for the destruction of the flesh. Next observation. Is Satan a subcontractor of the church? Why would he do this? Is that the church said to Satan, Satan, we need your help here. We got a guy that won't cooperate. So what we want you to do is you kind of do your thing with him so he'll be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, he doesn't do that. He is not in the business of helping people spiritually. What's going on here? Verse 12, chapter 5. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without, outside the church? Do not you judge them that are within, inside the church? He's writing to the church at Corinth. Judgment means decision. A decision has been made. Verse 13, but them that are without God is judging. So here's what happens. We put them out of the church. Satan under the rule of God, an instrument in God's hands for judgment, which in chapter 11 means chastening. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord, but whom the Lord chasteneth, he judges. So no, Satan is not in the business of helping the church and helping God. He's doing it unwittingly. Just like he's not in the business of chapter 12 giving Paul a thorn in the flesh to humble Paul. Because that's what Paul said happened. You remember. Lest I be exalted, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. It was Satan, a messenger of Satan, to attack me. Lest I be exalted. Satan does not humble people. God does through Satan. So the penalty is delivering such an one to the destruction of the flesh for which God takes over then, and He's over all at all times. But this is what He tells us to do. And God uses Satan as an instrument to destroy the flesh for restoration. That's the hope. That's the expectation. And this word destruction can mean external ills. Satan has some power. There may be economic Problems. There may be health issues. There may be all kinds of ways and things that a person goes through. But what is the aim? The destruction of governing desire. To show the person they're empty and broken. And a restoration takes place. The expectation of the Lord. Which brings us to the second point. 
which is that this punishment inflicted, we must understand, is not punitive. Punitive just means for the sake of pain. Punishment is not for the sake of punishment. Pain is not for the sake of pain. It's for the sake of restoration. It's a means to an end. It's not the end. Just like parental discipline is not the end. Why do you do do that to your children? I just like to inflict pain. No. There's a good end. Now we can see this concerning the way Paul explains in the first four verses why he wrote a letter instead of visit them. There was an aim of Paul through the pain that he was after, the pain of restoration. So listen to verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul said, but I determined, which is krino, which means I made a judgment call here. I decided within myself, I thought through this, that I would not come a second time in heaviness. The first visit was so painful, he thought, I'm not going to come just yet a second time. I don't think it will be beneficial. Verse 2, why Paul? Because if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. What's Paul saying? If I came personally and there was more pain, who's going to make me happy? Implying, you're the one church that's supposed to make me happy. Now that just sounds off when I say it, doesn't it? It's like, what is going on here? Hebrews 13, 17 bears this out, doesn't it? Obey them which have the rule over you, for they watch for your souls. Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy, but watching, and not with grief, because that would be not good for you. All right, who is he telling them to be persuaded by? The word obey there is be persuaded. We should not be surprised that God uses the word submission throughout every authority found in the Bible. Children, obey your parents. Wives, submit to your husbands. Citizens, submit to the government. Church, submit to one another. Ephesians 5. Servants, submit to your masters. There's not a context of authority in the Bible where there's a limited scope of authority. We understand that, right? There's a limited scope that God doesn't say, we don't have to submit to that. So Paul says... Be persuaded and submit to those that have the rule or lead over you. Now in Hebrews 13, he tells us it's those that have spoken the word of God. Remember then the rule over you that have spoken unto you the word of God. So the scope of submission to elders is the word of God. That's it. That's the end. That's it. So you submit voluntarily. It's your submission. No forced here. Why? They're watching over your souls. And they have to give an account for it. I don't like that part of the verse at all. I like the joy part. I don't like this part of the verse. (laughs) They must give an account to God for how they watched. Now, let Paul do it, church of Corinth. Let him do it with joy because that's not good for you. Why not? Because Paul's joy is in their submission. Paul's joy is in their obedience to Christ. What happens if they don't submit to Paul's word and obey Christ? 
It's a loss of joy for them. Do you see that? It's a loss of your joy if you don't submit to Christ. And Paul now is sad because that's his joy. It's not about the money. It's not about prestige. It's about the people following Jesus. Paul, if he loses his joy, he will not complete his ministry. Now, last week we said a joyless Christian won't stand long. A joyless pastor won't continue long. Statistics say 1,500 pastors quit a month. Now, there's probably a myriad of reasons. But one of them is joylessness, right? Paul said in Acts chapter 20, when the church tried to convince him not to go to Jerusalem. He said, I know the Holy Ghost is witnessing in every city that bonds and affliction abide me when I get there. Pain and chains are waiting for me, yet none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself, but I might finish my course with joy. He needs joy to finish his life and his course. And the ministry implied what? I want to finish my ministry with joy. Because if there's no joy, what does Paul do? He hangs up his smock or his coat or his briefcase or whatever it is. He goes down and buys a cottage on the Mediterranean Sea and he retires and says, I'm not being hurt anymore. Read 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11 and look at the pain he suffered. He says, I've had it. There's just no joy in this. I'm not doing it. But if he continues on the pathway of joy, what happens? He finishes his ministry that was given him of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Because a joyless pastor has no testimony of grace, does he? He's just sour. And that goes for you too. So Paul says, I decided not to come personally for my own joy. Now look at verse 3. And I wrote this same unto you. The word same means for this very purpose unto you. Lest, the word lest is hina may. So that not. So that this wouldn't happen. So I decided not to come personally but to, to send a letter so that this would not happen. Lest when I came I should have sorrow for them of whom I ought to rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all, or that it would be the joy of you all. Again, Paul says, I decided to write and not come so that you wouldn't have sorrow and I wouldn't have sorrow. We'd all have joy because our joy rises and falls together. Now, Paul sounds like a a, a parent of a child-centered home, doesn't he? I mean, if we say no to little Susie, She's going to have pain. She's going to cry. She's going to be upset. She's not going to have any joy. And in turn, mom and dad aren't going to be happy. They're not going to have any joy. So don't say anything to Susie to make her upset so that she can have joy and we can have joy and we can be happy together. It's not what Paul is saying. You know why? The letter he wrote was severe. It caused pain. So Paul's not saying, I'm just avoiding pain with you guys. He says, no, I want to give you the right kind of pain. I thought coming to you in person would not work towards your joy. So he's going to give them time to work it out and repent. He thought a severe letter. The first letter, he said, what, you are arrogant. 
Well, that feels good, doesn't it? You're puffed up. He's directly confronting the church and he's bringing sorrow to them. For what end? The end of restoration because his sorrow that came is not punitive. He wasn't just trying to get them back or or to be hurtful or harmful and just wanted them to feel some pain. He was confident and persuaded when he wrote this way, rather than go, that the writing would produce his joy and their joy. My joy, Paul says. And what is Paul's joy? Philippians 2.2. Fulfill ye my joy, he said to the church, that ye be like-minded, having the same love one to another. The word fulfill means to bring it to completion. Paul says to the church, bring my joy to completion. How, Paul? By united love that you have one for another. Which means what? If there's love on a horizontal basis, there's only one way it happens. Love on the vertical plane. Love for God yields love to one another. Bring my joy to completion, Paul says. Not by giving me more money or, or telling me how great I am. Love God and then be unified in your love for one another. And when that happens, joy goes up for Philippi. And what, what is the message of that letter? Rejoice. And joy goes up for Paul. So Paul is saying, the reason I wrote the way I did was not to spare you all pain, but that the sorrow would produce a restoration that would bring joy. Punishment is never punitive in the kingdom of God. Verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved. There it is. I wasn't working for your grief, although it produced it, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Now, how would the church know that about Paul? Yeah, Paul, we we see that you loved us. Chapter 7, verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul's after a sorrow that produced repentance. When they repented... And they did. They would know the love that Paul has more abundantly to them because he was working for what? Their joy. Say, repentance is not really a joyful thing. Oh, but it is. That's what David said in Psalm 51. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Through what? The deep sorrow of brokenness and repentance before God led to a restoration of joy. So Nathan, when he spoke those words, you're the man, he was a helper of Paul's joy. Because godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted. But just mere sorrow of the world is just death, right? And what about Acts chapter 2 when Peter preached that sermon and said, you have taken and crucified the Lord of glory. They were pricked in the heart. You know what that word means? To pierce with the sorrow of emotion. They are heavy. They are grieving. There is pain. And they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Because sins have been remitted. Where's the gladness? Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. The sorrow gave way to joy. The punishment inflicted of many is not punitive. It's never punitive. It's working toward restoration. And the church, in the various ways God calls on us to one another to inflict some measure, depending on what the case is, of punishment, pain, sorrow, the sorrow of having to be confronted, rebuked, that's not joy in and of itself, is to lead to the joy of restoration. That causes us to make sure we define love the right way. Somebody says, you're so unloving, church, right? It's like the politician in Chicago says to the governor of Texas, you're a Christian and you're doing this? Where's the love? See, everybody has a distorted view of what love really is. Paul says, I loved you because I was willing to have a tense conversation with you. I was willing to write a letter that made me uncomfortable. It was out of anguish. I want you to know I was afflicted. I was weeping over it, but it was needful. Love is willing to have a tense, awkward conversation for the sake of the joy of the person you're trying to help. Self-love says, I'm not going to do that. When a church loves itself, it will not do what God says because I just don't want the pain of it which means I just love myself. In fact, it's very easy to love myself in this way. It's like, I, I don't want to talk to I, you know It's just going to be hard and difficult and uncomfortable for me. And that's the problem. Because I'm not thinking about you. I'm just thinking about me. Love was willing to write the letter and determine that this was the best possible way, working the Spirit working through it for restoration, and God blessed it. He blessed it. And then finally, before we move from the point of why restoration is needed, there's this punishment word here, is that we learn something about who does the punishing. Again, when you hear that word, you need to think restoration. Restoration. It's verses like this, verse 7, where we make two observations. The first one is, is that consensus is not required. 100% agreement is not required because it was reflected by the more part, the majority. Sometimes churches feel like you have to have consensus. You don't have to have. That would be good. That should be worked for, but it's not required. In fact, just take Corinth as a scenario in chapter, chapter 3 of the first epistle. Paul said, Are you not yet carnal? Whereas among you envying, strife, divisions... You are yet carnal and walk as men. So suppose you just got three people in the church that fit that description. Everything they're doing is envy, selfish ambition, and they're divisive. And they're going to vote. Three people can prevent and thwart the obedience of an entire church indefinitely. One person, me, let's just take me. I have a flesh. I can be tempted to envy, and I probably could get divisive. One vote, and I stop the whole congregation from obedience. No, it was the majority part. It is unwise to rest a case on a single person. Second observation, 
It's texts like this that we derive our church form of governance, which is elder-led congregationalism, as opposed to episcopacy and Presbyterianism. Now, those are our friends. But this text says the church inflicted the punishment, not the bishops and not an ecclesiastical body, not an association, not a committee, not the elders, not the pastors. How do you know that? Well, because of verse 7. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to do the very opposite of what you did, which was inflict the punishment. Now you should forgive. Who does Paul write this letter to? The church at Corinth. The church is the final court of appeals, not elders. In the wisdom of God, he's determined this is how church governance is to work. Matthew chapter 18, there's five words that pin this down. Tell it unto church. Maybe six words in case you want to look at it differently. The church is the final authority over matters of punishment. Case closed. Tell it to the church. Now presumably an elder-led congregation has, has led them to the place of the final appeal. The final court of decision is with the body. And there are other verses which we draw from to tell us this is God's way of church governance. Somebody says that's not very efficient. Maybe not. I mean, we've got to get the people together. We've got to talk about it. We've got to pray about it. Yeah, not very efficient. Somebody says, but I don't want to be involved with such tense stuff. It's not about efficiency, and it's not about how you feel. It's about what God has said in His Word. The church, very clearly, is the one that inflicted it and the one that gave the restoration. The one that receives members, the one that dismisses members, is the church body. Congregationalism, elder-led, which requires trust, doesn't it? So when we try to participate in our own church governance, not some hierarchical system, there are issues that are not specifically addressed in the Bible that every church that follows this pattern of governance has to decide with prudence and wisdom what the church's participation should be. For example, should we have a members meeting to decide what kind of toilet paper to buy for the bathrooms? Probably not. Would you agree? Should we have a meeting to determine whether to spend 80000 on a church remodel? Probably so. Would you agree? And everything in between, we're working through the participation of the church to what level, what degree. But rest assured, it's the church that has the final court of appeals. And every church then has to decide what that participation is. And we ebb and flow, sometimes historically, traditionally, things have been handed to us. Now, what that means is the next time we say we're going to have a members meeting, you know in the wisdom of God and the will of God, He's determined you participate. So when you loathe it, and I know, I get it, Sunday afternoon, God is calling on you in His wisdom and His will to join together for the important work that sometimes can be inefficient. Sometimes doesn't make you feel very good. But nevertheless, God said do it. He said do it. So will you just make that commitment with me now? Unless you're providentially hindered to be part of participating in the way God 
has said you should, and particularly with such a work as this, for the solemn occasion when a brother or sister has to have punishment inflicted according to Scripture, the prayer, the solemnity, the sorrow, the concern, the deep mourning, looking for restoration. Because God, beloved, is the God of restoration. Aren't you glad about that? Where would you be? He's the God of restoration. All right, now what's the process? Let's look at the process next. There's three words in the process beginning in verse 7. Forgive, comfort, confirm. It's not over when you forgive. Forgive, now church, comfort the brother, now church, ratify. Confirm your love. And there's the aim, isn't it? Love. Love keeps going. Love just doesn't quit when this work is done. Love is expecting. Love is looking. Love is like the Luke 15 father, the prodigal. He's looking. He's leaning. And then he lavishes on the prodigal. We should be looking, leaning, and ready to lavish love. Now here's the question. If forgive means to send away or to pardon, why is it so challenging sometimes? Why do you hear people say sometimes, oh, I can't forgive, I won't forgive? Because of verse 5. But if any have caused grief, grief, the first class conditional word if assumes that it has happened. Well, if somebody calls for grief, no, he could say, since it has happened, this brother has grieved you. In part, Paul could be saying, he received some grief in part, but for the church's sake, not to give them over, over much or overcharge them with the burden. He's trying to be, be uh, gentle here. It, it has caused some measure of grief for all of you. See, forgiveness is so hard because there's never an occasion where forgiveness is required, that there's not some grief, some injury, something you've either done that's deeply hurt someone, or something that has happened to you that's deeply painful. Sometimes it could be low-level pain. Sometimes it could be so deep, so hurtful, so injurious, that even yourself, who wants to forgive, wonder, how can I possibly forgive Let's talk about that for a few minutes. One, it's important to know the point of forgiveness. When is it extended? At the point of repentance and confession. If forgiveness is extended prior to repentance, the work of discipline has been preemptive. It's been forestalled. You've conferred a forgiveness on somebody before confession and repentance. Now we know the brother has repented because there's sorrow. Paul says, lest perhaps in verse 7, such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Sufficient. It's enough. It's over. Why, Paul? There's sorrow that produced repentance. There's been confession and repentance. So the point of forgiveness, according to Paul, is the point of confession and acknowledgement and repentance. If we do so ahead of time, we've stopped the work of restoration. Well, I'm forgiven, well, you know. And so often we, we overlook the importance of confession. Confession is so important. 
Confession is homologeo in the New Testament, which means to say the same thing. Of course, it means to say the same thing as God, right? Whoever repented of a sin that they didn't confess. Listen to Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth a sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. To cover means to hide it. You won't prosper, which means at some point in time, the sin is going to find you out. Just mark it down. doesn't mean you won't get a job or get promoted. It means you won't be successful in covering it. Guilt will find you out. Conscience will find you out. And God will find you out. Because He knows it. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. Confession is so important because if you don't confess it, why would you forsake it? If you say, well, no, that's not wrong. Well, no, everybody's doing it. Well, no, you don't understand. I don't think it's a sin. Well, then you're not going to forsake it. Confession is so important because unless you acknowledge from God's Word, yes, it's just like God said. Okay, then what now? I need to forsake it. Nobody forsakes a sin that they don't confess. It just doesn't happen. So the confession is critical for the brother or he keeps on fornicating in chapter 5 or keeps on assaulting verbally. He just keeps on. Well, we just forgive you. Well, the point of forgiveness is the point of confession and repentance. But Solomon says, confession and forsaking brings mercy. The very mercy we need to overcome the sin is unleashed in the confession. See, confession is twofold. First, I acknowledge my sin. I have sinned against thee, and, and in heaven no more worthy to be called thy son. I confess it. But what else are you confessing? God, I'm confessing. I, I can't overcome it. I can't forsake it. There's these desires. There's this weakness. Seems like every time my mouth just says it. The confession of sin brings the unleashing of the mercy of God that helps you then forsake it. In Jesus, your Savior, who's already died for the sin that you're confessing. Isn't that amazing? He died to give you the mercy to overcome it. He died to unleash the fountain of God's mercy for you so that you could overcome besetting sin and enslaving sin and addiction or whatever you're struggling with. So the point of forgiveness is the confession. I've told you before, I had a person call me one time say, Brother Mike, I just want you to know I forgive you. What did I do? I knew what they were talking about. But the reality of the situation is I had not thought that I had done anything wrong in that case. I just forgive you. Okay. Now, if I had really sinned, the person didn't do me any good because I never forsook whatever they tell me I was doing wrong because there was no confession. So the call should have been a confronting, a working through, whether I'd sinned or not. So the confession repentance would bring a restoration with God and with the person on the phone. That's the aim. And so the point of forgiveness is to be the point of confession and repentance. And the brother is sorrowful. So he will not be overwhelmed with sorrow. Now forgive him. Now is the point of forgiveness. Secondly, the preparation for forgiveness. 
We are to be forgiving one another daily. Sometimes there are occasions where the offense has happened, there is no repentance, and there's a period of time. So you have to prepare your heart for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not verbally spoken yet, but you need to have a forgiving heart. And that requires some work, doesn't it? So the first thing to do to, to, to have a forgiving heart, to be prepared to forgive, no matter how deep, how hard, how injurious, is to remember the mercy of God in the cross. That's the first place to go. In fact, the Bible always calls us to go there, doesn't it? See, that's the problem with the servant who went and grabbed the man by the throat. After he had just been forgiven 10,000 talents and this man owes him 100 pence, the point is, is huge difference. The servant who owed him a hundred pence repeated the same words that the wicked servant said to his Lord. When the king took an account of his servants and one owed him 10,000 talents, said, sell him, sell his wife, sell his children, put him in debtor's prison. He said, have patience with me and I'll repay all that I owe you, which was absolutely impossible. Couldn't do it. And the king moved with compassion, forgave him all the debt. He goes out and grabs the man by the throat and the man says the same thing. Have patience with me and I will repay thee. But he throws him in debtor's prison until he pays his debt. Now that's rather odd. How is he going to pay his debt in prison when he can't work? I guess he could encourage someone, borrow the money, get somebody to pay it for him. But you would think he would put him, let him stay out of the prison to pay off his debt. But we know that's not the problem. It wasn't a money problem, it was a heart problem. Jesus makes that clear because he's confronting Peter. The whole parable comes when Peter says, Lord, how often shall we forgive? Till seven times? I'm sure he thought, I have really stretched it here. Boy, I'm really bending. I can't wait till Jesus says, well, you're you're such a a gracious guy. I can't believe you'd forgive that many times. He said, I say it to not unto thee seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, is Jesus really wanting us to count? I think that's 490. And when you get there, it's like, okay, I reached my limit. No, Jesus is saying, Peter, there's a heart problem here. It's not about numbers. It's about your heart. And he illustrates with the servant who has a heart problem in relation to the compassion of the king, in relation to forgiveness this way. So when the king finds out, he goes and gets the servant. servant throws him into prison. He's very upset and angered. And he delivers him to the tormentors. And Jesus says, here's the point of the parable. So too will my father do to you if you do not forgive from your hearts those that have offended you. From your heart. Peter, this is a heart issue. Because Peter has placed a limitation on his forgiveness. And the limitation is rooted in Peter's own view of his value. How often shall I forgive the man that did that to me? He said that to me. He hurt me. He did this to me. Seven times. Jesus is saying, Peter, look at the forgiveness of your father. How high of a value has God placed on His name? Infinite. Infinite. How much injury have you done to the name of God? Infinite. That takes an infinite sacrifice. The problem is you're not valuing God's name and God's mercy in the cross. You're valuing your own person. Now, beloved, I do not want to belittle the pain and the high cost of forgiveness 
There's pain that's been endured. And there's valuable things that are taken away that cause great grief. But when you start to compare it to the value of Christ and His mercy and the freedom of it, the power to forgive, the power to prepare your heart when the time comes to forgive will overflow in forgiveness as you look to the cross and remember the great debt you've been forgiven and the great dishonor you've done to the name of God through Christ in which whatever dishonor toward you is infinitely small compared to what we've done to God. And He's forgiven us. See, the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the evil speaking and the malice, Paul says, put away. How? Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Tenderhearted, compassionate. How do you have a tender heart? That's what you've got to have to forgive. From the heart. Now you can say it with the lips, but Jesus says, from the heart. A tender heart. A compassionate heart. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. There's the key. When you rehearse that over and over in your mind, and not rehearse your bitterness, you'll be ready to forgive. Jeremiah rehearsed his bitterness. Remembering the wormwood and the gall, I still have them in remembrance, and my soul is humbled. In Jeremiah's mind, there was a broken record going on. You know, that's the old vinyl record has a bad scratch, and it hits the scratch, and it just loops endlessly and plays the same refrain or the same words on the song. The loop in his mind was... The pain, the bitterness, the wormwood, the gall. Jeremiah's not ready to forgive until he recalls to mind. It is of the Lord's mercies we're not consumed. Beloved, why are you not consumed? Mercy. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Your compassion, your steadfast love fails not. When he shifts the record in his mind to playing over and over in his mind the mercy of God... I think Jeremiah has hope because he said he did. He's ready to forgive and you will be too. Remember the mercy. Remember the justice of God. Romans 12 says, Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. As much as life within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The word place means a spot and an occasion. How do you give a spot for God's wrath? Place. Let's say your enemies. The next verse says, so if your enemy hungers, give him food. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. How do you keep a spot? How do you give place to your enemies? You bring them to the place of God's wrath. The cross. His wrath was satisfied on behalf of sinners. So rather than retaliate, which is default, Rather than get back, Paul says, give place for God's wrath first, which means bring them to the cross. That melts a person's heart. You're not going to do that just by telling them, you know what you do to me, how you've hurt me? That may make somebody feel bad. That's just all collateral stuff. Bring them to the cross. That's the place of God's wrath. Then you'll be prepared. Right? Right? Then secondly, the occasion of God's wrath will be ultimately forever. So you can't retaliate enough. If there's an enemy that is harming you that doesn't belong to God, you can't retaliate enough. 
Leave it to God. It is His by right of His glory and His honor, and He will do it perfectly forever. So there's the, the two. Remember justice and re- justice will be served. I think about the family in Memphis, the young lady that was killed and murdered. I think about every ounce of justice that rises within us and maybe even the thought of retaliation. Is that not possible? How will they continue? If this man were, by the grace of God, were to turn and repent, if, although he would serve the consequences, which Christians should do if they arm people and break the law, they serve out the consequences if it's just, how would they ever say, I forgive you? By remembering the cross and the justice of God has been satisfied. And if not for that person, they can rest. Because when Jesus comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel, Paul says, rest in that. No human court will ever serve justice righteously, ever. But God will. And God says, I want you to rest in that. So don't retaliate. Remember mercy. Remember the cross. Remember sovereignty. Sometimes that, in a difficult injury, that needs to be the last place because sometimes it can seem like you don't care. Just, brother, God's sovereign. But at some place, at some point, we recover and we remember no injury you sustain is outside of the sovereign rule and holy purposes of God. None of them. No matter how deep it is, no matter how hard, no matter how painful, there is never an injury a child of God sustains from another person but what God has not ordained it for His holy purposes. That will put iron in your blood. That won't take away the weeping. That won't take away the pain right away, but it'll make you stable. Joseph, Genesis 50, verse 20. He was abused for 13 years, sold into slavery, hated, and then put in prison. Almost 20 years later, he has the power now as prime minister of Egypt to retaliate and nobody would question him. In fact, everybody would say, well, that's right, man, you're the prime minister, do what you want. He could have taken vengeance on his brothers. They had inflicted pain. They had inflicted sorrow. They had given him great cost. They had taken away his youth. He was 17. They were terrible. Why would you forgive these people? Jacob knew. Jacob knew it was going to be hard. So he told them right before he died. God had worked to bring all the family into Egypt after the seven years of plenty, during the seven years of plant. Uh, Famine, so they could be provided for. So Jacob dies in Egypt. God's protecting his people. And Jacob says to the brothers, said, listen, when I die, you know, Joseph may not forgive you. So you go tell him and say, Dad said, he, he pleads with you to forgive. They sinned against you. We send Joseph. And they bow down before him and said, we're, we're just your servants. Just tell us what to do. Joseph wept. He often wept when he saw them, not out of anger, not out of bitterness, because God was with Joseph and Joseph was with God all through it. That phrase is repeated in the 13 years 
of his incarceration. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, which means Joseph was with God. In all that pain, he weeps and he says, Am I in the place of God? Romans 12. Is it my place to enact vengeance if that's what God aims? That's his place. But as for you, you thought evil against me, which means you planned it. And then he repeats the same word. But God meant, he thought, he planned your evil for good. Same Hebrew word. God planned your evil for a purpose. All that you did was your evil, but God used it for a purpose, to save much people alive as it is this day. And you know what Joseph did? He forgave them. What was the point of forgiveness? Repentance and confession. They had done that when they were being held by Joseph. Reuben said, you know why this is happening. We did a terrible thing to our brother. He forgave them at the point of forgiveness. He embraced them and he loved them. Why? He remembered the sovereignty of God. And he says it in Genesis 50.20. The New Testament version of Genesis 50.20 is Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for them that love God. Who are the called according to His purpose. God is making everything to serve His holy purposes. Even your pain. And even your sorrow. What a way to show the magnificent grace of God and the love and the treasure of God's forgiveness than you being able to extend forgiveness to somebody else as a church or as an individual, as Joseph did. So we remember the cross, we remember justice, we remember sovereignty. And that prepares us if reconciliation is delayed to keep bitterness at bay. Because if you remember the pain, that's all you can remember. That's all you'll not be ready. And then what are the last two words? Just take them together. What does he say? Now confirm, or comfort and confirm. Comfort means to strengthen and encourage. We must not assume that when repentance happens, that the brother has no more struggle with the sin that caused the inflicted punishment. So the church now strengthens and encourages Maybe some kind of discipling. Maybe some kind of meeting. Maybe when he was turned over to Satan, it destroyed his house, destroyed his income. So we want to help him get a job. Okay, we forgive you. See you you next week. No, no. Comfort him. Maybe he needs help. Maybe the addiction was so strong. He says, I don't want to do this anymore. He needs help. Say, what if he doesn't want the help? True repentance. Chapter 7. Paul says, we'll seek the help. If the help is needed, they'll be compliant. Why? Because they've been restored to fellowship with God. So the church comforts, the church then ratifies their love publicly, the word means. They let it be known. We forgive, we forgive, and we embrace. You know what Joseph did in Genesis 50? He forgave, he nourished, he comforted, and he spoke to their hearts. He brought them in, he comforted them, he nourished them, he comforted and confirmed his love to them and his forgiveness, and he embraced them. And that's what God calls on us to do, beloved. A church that is functioning, as God says, will be a church that's ready not only to forgive, but to comfort, to help in any way, biblically, that we can, and then to confirm and embrace. What a time of rejoicing. And then the third, last thing, we need to be aware of the adversary of forgiveness. Verse 11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 
Now, there are all kinds of schemes and devices he has, but one apparently is an unforgiving spirit. He divides churches. He divides relationships. He divides people because they're unwilling to forgive. Sometimes they're unwilling to confess. That divides. I didn't do anything wrong. It's your fault. But here, they're unwilling to forgive. And it separates and divides. Oh, how we should guard against letting Satanas is the word. The adversary is the meaning of getting the advantage over the church by working through an unforgiving spirit. Let us remember the cross of Jesus Christ and how it, what it means for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the great forgiveness you have bestowed upon us. Deliver us from an unforgiving spirit. Deliver us from the kind of spirit where Satan would come in and take an advantage of us, either for puffing us up like he did the church at Corinth and being unwilling to be obedient to what you say, or puffing us up and being unwilling to forgive when someone experiences the sorrow of repentance and experiences the confession. May we be prepared to forgive at the point of repentance. May we be prepared by remembering the mercy, your mercy on the cross, and that you are just, and your justice has been satisfied. May we be satisfied with it, and that you will right all wrongs one day. And to remember, Lord, your sovereignty over all things for the glory of your name. Bless us to be such a church of restoration of sinners who need your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.